But good to see Wesley back. Mr. Thurman has had some pretty uh, significant surgery. God has healed him and got him back here. God's good. You guys excited to be here? Good. Well, I'm going to tell you a stupid story about Kevin. A uh, story about my childhood, actually. Because as humans, sometimes we just don't get it. And that's what our story today is about. I, as a child, was pretty much a good kid, honestly. I was a pleaser. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I still kind of am. But I was a pleaser. I wanted mommy and daddy to think that I was awesome and great and always obeyed them. So I was pretty good at following the rules for the most part. Uh, there's certain things, though, that you get curious about. And I remember, I think it was the first day of VBS, maybe the second day of VBS, and we were warming up the car, my mom and I. She was going to drive us to church for VBS. And then, yeah, it was back in the day when you had to warm up the car. It was a thing. You don't have to today with modern engines. But we're warming up the car, and I'm sitting in the front seat. <coughs> mom goes in to make sure the girls are coming out or something like that, my two sisters. And, and I see this little button on the dash. And you know as kids, there are things in the car that you're just not supposed to touch, right? You know the list of them. The, the, the parents have been over them. You know them here. But as a little boy, I'm just looking at this button thinking, well, that looks so exciting. There's like a little little stick, and then there's a little smoke coming off it. This has got to be fun. I think they say that's the cigarette lighter. I don't know. I wonder what happens when you push it. So I pushed it. Oh, and then it stayed in. And I was like, wait a second, it's still in. That's, well, this isn't good. Why is it still in? Mom is going to come out here. She's going to find out that I pushed something that was supposed to, and it's in, not out. And she's going to think I, oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. I'm panicking. I'm panicking. I'm panicking. So I, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to pull. It doesn't come real easy. And pull. It comes all the way out and lands on the floor, on the carpet, carpeted floor, people. And it's red hot. And I was like, I got to get it. I got to grab that thing and get it. So I grabbed it like this. I grabbed it. And quickly did I release it. <laughs> and it, oh, it hurt so badly. But it's now it's back on the carpet because I dropped it again. And now that's going to get lit on fire. So I can't grab it with his finger because his finger hurts so bad. I'll use these fingers. So I grabbed it. I didn't say I was a smart child and quickly dropped it again. It hurt so bad. It was burning, 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 but I knew I was in so much trouble already. I wasn't going to be able to hide these rings on my fingertips from mom, and it hurt so bad, and I'm crying, and I decide, okay, I can't grab it by the ends, so I used my ring finger, and I kind of grabbed it like this, but it was still on the metal part, so I burned myself on that finger. And I dropped it again. Three fingers down. I'm dying. It hurts so bad, and I'm so scared, and I know I'm in big trouble. Finally get the thing up by the, the, the plastic part, and I put it in there. It doesn't want to go in real well. So uh, apparently I had put it in backwards, and I decided to use my thumb to push it in farther. Rings around the thumb. Pointer finger, middle finger. Blisters on the ring finger. I had a pinky, praise God. And I, in tears, just ran into the house like, Mom, I burned myself. And she's like, what? Four times? 
Do you know what the VBS workers are going to do? They're going to call CPS. Because obviously I've been burning your fingertips for discipline. And I'm like, no, you're the best mom ever. Don't take the movie away. I'm going to CPS. It was horrible. I was told what to do. I knew what to do. And I just didn't listen. And then I just kept doing stupid thing after stupid thing after stupid thing to make it worse. We get to the disciples, the Pharisees, everybody in the stories today just seem to not get it. They seem to just go back to stupid thing after stupid thing. But I think we're going to be able to, in some ways, understand and sympathize with them, maybe be challenged a little bit in the way that we do that as believers in Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Mark 8. (coughs) We're going to go 1 through 21 today, kind of three little mini stories. Uh, I'll have the text on the screen behind me. There it is. And then we've got paper copies of God's Word just back there. You can borrow or uh, or have one. And then there's a lot of great Bible apps for the phone, which is super cool. Um, if you're curious what version, we use the ESV or English Standard Version. So usually your Bible app has an option for that, which is really fun. So you can check out different versions. But let's let's check out what it says and see what God's saying to us today. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Uh, All words in the Bible are important, so even those first little words in those days that seem kind of inconsequential, That's actually there to call us back to the previous setting. In those days, well, what has just happened, he has been in the Decapolis region. He went to uh, Sidon and Tyre. uh, We're all Gentile regions last week, kind of the north side of the Sea of Galilee and then down to the east side of the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis, which was this five-city or five-kingdom or region area. And it was all Gentile land. It was not Jewish territory. And we kind of, we, we paid attention to that last week. We'll talk about it again a little bit today. But um, here he is in this Gentile area. That's what in those days is supposed to remind us where he is. Then we kind of get into the meat of the story. This is going to be uh, called the feeding of the 4,000. And what you might remember is just a couple chapters ago, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. It's a very similar story to the feeding of the 5,000, but it's also quite unique. Uh, We'll look at a lot of the contrasts. We'll look at a lot of the comparisons of the two stories. Uh, But there's a couple differences that are really important. Um, First of all, we get to this this three-day concept. Jesus right away says, this crowd has been with me three days. Before the feeding of the 5,000, back in Jewish territory, they had only been with him a day at the most. And the disciples and Jesus were super whooped. They were super tired from ministry. They really needed to rest. They didn't even have time to eat, the scriptures told us. And so sleep property was hard to come by. The disciples come to Jesus, and he's like, they say, Jesus, you got to send the crowds away. Send them away. There's no food here. You need to send them away. Here we're going to find out Jesus is the one that actually calls his disciples to him, sees the problem, and says, hey, these people have been with me how many days? Three days. 
Now, I tell you what, I, I do want to press rewind on the DVR in heaven and see what Jesus taught for three days. I mean, this is amazing. Three days. Like, m- most people are like, uh, Pastor, your sermon is past the 42-minute mark, and uh, I'm kind of tired, and I want lunch, so could you get on with it? Say amen. And the pastor says, in conclusion, for the sixth time, and you're like, you're not done. There, there's actually a lot of stuff out there that says, you know, preachers should preach shorter because you're not that good. And you can't hold people. You can't hold people's attention that long. Don't think so well of yourself that you can preach for two hours. Don't do that. This isn't going to be two hours. If you just got nervous, this is it's going to be nice medium length. But he could. I didn't say short. I said medium. <laughs> I'm being honest. I won't lie to you. Uh, Jesus is able to captivate This group of people that don't have to be there, in fact, they stop working, whatever it is they do, mostly agriculture in that day, they they just come to Jesus. And it is likely they had some provisions when they came, but they're running out. It's been three days, and they're still there hanging on every word. This is the kind of man and God that Jesus is. He's captivating. He, he has things to say. He is impressive. Not, not, not He wasn't good looking. Scripture says he, he really wasn't good looking. Uh, he didn't have an impressive uh, resume. He was a carpenter's son. He didn't come from an impressive town. But Jesus had the words of life. And people have already noticed that his teaching is so different than everything they've ever heard in church before. So, uh, again, this is something I'm going to have to... Re- press rewind on. I want to hear this three days of teaching someday. Jesus, again, he brings the need to his disciples. He says, first of all, I have compassion on this crowd. He sees a need and he's moved by compassion. Uh, Let's not forget again, though, that Jesus formerly, he saw the need of a Jewish crowd and filled it. But this compassion to people that are outside the Jewish nation is something we need to pay attention to. We talked about this last week, that Jesus was called, first of all, to the Jewish nation, that he was uh, the long-expected Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Savior of the world. And none of us who aren't Jews, none of us Gentiles, if you will, need to feel bad that, that Jesus came, first of all, to the Jewish nation. That's just God's plan, and it's okay. Uh, But God, in his superabundance, has enough love, enough grace, enough compassion, as Jesus shows here, for the entire world. He is the Savior of the world. So he sees the details, too, though. He's, He's really concerned about this crowd. He's not just in general concern. He knows how long they've been there. He knows where a lot of them are from. He knows that if they go and try to make it home on an empty stomach after a couple days of not eating, again, these people are depriving themselves of food to hear Jesus. He had something to say. But he's afraid that they'll faint on the way home. Jesus cares about their situation. He cares about the details of their life. And he cares about the details of your life, dear Christian, as well. I, I'm going to confess to you probably throughout the whole sermon, that this sermon has been kicking my rear all week long. It has been convicting me all week long. I've been in this place where several little little bad things happen and a couple big bad things happen, and I'm worried about this, and this is happening, and now money, and this. Uh, and I started to, just, I just found myself complaining to anyone that would listen to me. 
<laughs> I mean, really, you know how it goes. Oh, here's an ear. They love me. Oh, my life sucks. It's horrible. I'm so sad. Woe is me. I'm a victim. The world's out to get me. My life is horrible. And I just, because I really was sad. And I did have some very real concerns, but I just found myself complaining. And I had to rebuke myself over and over. Because I'm like, oh, well, I know God cares about the big stuff. He, he, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place so that I could be forgiven of my sins. That's the big thing. He's got that taken care of. But what about all these little things that I'm dealing with today? Does God really care about that stuff? And I say, yes. Yes, he does. And I need to remember it because of the way he sees details in our lives and the way he swiftly goes after them and takes care of them. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now we start to see some of the similarities of the two stories, don't we? And it seems like a practically word for word verbatim exchange that the disciples are having. They're like, wait a second, these people are hungry. There's this huge need and you're worried about them. But there's no Burger Kings out here. We're in the boonies. We're way out in the wilderness. There's. Where are we going to get the food? Disciple, disciple, disciple. Do you so quickly forget the feeding of the 5,000 where they're out in a desolate place? And Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? And they said, where are we going to get the bread in this desolate place? How do you so easily forget? Now, the only... I want it to be somehow easy on these disciples because I'm going, come on, you know this stuff. You've studied for this test. Why are you failing again? The only thing I could find is that some scholars are like, listen, at least the disciples aren't considering Jesus a, a miracle vending machine. I mean, that's probably a good thing. Jesus healed people all the time. He, uh, he cast out demons from people who were possessed, like, all the time. That was kind of the regular stuff. The big miracles, though, it's not like the disciples should expect Jesus to be their miracle vending machine. Feed me, you know. Well, Jesus turned water into wine once. <laughs> Maybe you can do it again, Jesus. Could really, I got a hankering for some Pinot Grigio. They weren't looking at Jesus that way. Well, he walked on the water once. Hey, Jesus, show him that chick where he walked on the water. They, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that the disciples aren't just expecting Jesus to do miracles all the time. In fact, we're going to find out in the text today that some of the people that just don't get it are unbelievers who demand signs. So the disciples, in some ways, are behaving well. They're not demanding a sign from Jesus, demanding for him to feed this crowd, etc., etc. But at the same time, Jesus just told you he has compassion on this crowd. He sees a need. He wants to fill a need. So how do the disciples not get it? Well, again, <laughs> I think the human nature thing is that we tend to see a problem where God sees an opportunity. And I know, again, this is Kevin Pitts preaching at Kevin Pitts. All week long, I was fixated on my problems, and I failed to look for God's plan. I was fixated on my problem and didn't search for God's plan. I am convinced that God has a plan for my life. Things don't just happen to me. It's not haphazard. 
I believe Scripture teaches me and assures me in the sovereignty of God. He's in control. Now, sadly, that becomes a stumbling block to us when weeks like my week happen, or far worse. Again, compared to some of the weeks you guys had, I'm sure my little problems seem stupid. But we start to think, oh, well, how can there be a good God and a loving God in this world when this is happening in my life or my family member's life or my friend's life? We think there's just no way that God is good or real. And we use it as a stumbling block. God says, no, let me teach you something. Let me grow you in some way, Kevin. Let me conform you to the image of my son in some way, Kevin. That's my plan. It's not to make you miserable. It's to make you joyful. It's to make you whole. It's to make you more like me. If I spent nearly as much time searching for God's plan in it, like it was gold treasure worth searching for with my resources, my time, with everything within me to search for what in the world is God's plan in this? It's here somewhere. I know it. Rather than spending all my time saying, woe is me, and look at my problems, and complaining to anyone who would hear how much better could life be? Do I believe that there is a treasure buried somewhere in this trial? Then I'm not going to do anything else but dig for treasure. I mean, if I really believe that, if I believed in the backyard of the church there was uh, $2 million and it could pay for the building and we'd be good, I wouldn't stop digging except for to eat and sleep. That's it. I would dig, dig, dig to get the mortgage paid because that would be amazing. Two million. Come on. None of us would stop digging if we believed it, if we knew it in our heart. Do we know in our heart that God has glory for his kingdom and for his name, that he has maturity for us, that he has something for us even in this trial, even in this suffering? Like last time, the Jewish crowd, with the Jewish crowd, he says uh, to his disciples, how many loaves do you have? A little different from last time. This time they have seven loaves. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Uh, this time it's Jesus himself who directs the crowd and has them sit down in groups. Last time it was, you know, he had his disi disciples do that. Um, last time we had this descriptor of the green grass they were going to sit on. Uh, even my wife was like, why in the world did it say green grass? And I found out this week, wife, it's because it was springtime. So apparently, th I mean, that's the only time there's green grass in Israel. It's usually quite brown. So it was, it was John Mark giving us a little <coughs> indicator of time of season. This time we don't get a time of season because they just sit down on, apparently, regular ground. Regular old ground. Um, and Jesus took the loaves, and he, and he gave thanks. Again, he, he prays for his food. He thanks God for his food, realizing that it comes from him, which I think is awesome. But don't be legalistic either. 
Don't think that if you don't pray for every meal that somehow you're going to get food poisoning. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's just a nice thing to say, God, I thank you for this. Also, don't think that you can pray hard enough to make McDonald's good for you. Because <laughs> it's just not. I mean, it's just not good for you. It tastes wonderful, I know. But you can't. I mean, maybe a mustard seed sort of faith. <laughs> mustard. See what I did there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he, so he gives thanks. He blessed them. He, he sets out the bread. And it, interestingly enough, it looks like as they're setting out the bread, maybe, they discover the fish. So like in the, in the other story, the, the bread and the fish were kind of the whole meal plan. It was like Jesus says, oh, yeah, let's do fish, too. We've got a few small fish, which probably refers to like really, really small sardines. They like sardines. I'll admit it. I do. No. My mom, she likes sardines. I got like three of you. Man, I'm old or something. You young people don't eat sardines. Okay, so fish, a little bit different kind of fish. Bread like before, uh, pretty sweet stuff. They ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. In fact, the Greek says seven large baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So th this is supposed to be beautiful and encouraging to all of us. Uh, when Jesus provides, he does it completely. Now, all of them, they ate and they were satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. A little can become a lot in the hands of our creator God. And those who choose to follow Jesus are going to get satisfaction. Period. It's going to happen. Done deal. It's guaranteed to us. Uh, we were challenged just last week to truly find our satisfaction and our sufficiency in Jesus Christ alone. That, they, that there's nothing in this world that we're looking to. Oh, I hope my job will make me happy. I hope my spouse will make me happy. I hope this entertainment will make me happy or this 401k will make me happy. No, I can't find my satisfaction or sufficiency from stuff. I find it in God. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't mean that, that no believer in Jesus Christ ever goes hungry or is ever physically sick or is ever in dire straits. It, it doesn't mean that. Anybody that tells you that is, is trying to sell you a line. It's not what the Bible says. Um, the satisfaction that we'll find is in the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life who fills the soul, and our soul will never be wanting but eternity is coming for us for the physical satisfaction as well. We need to understand that we cannot mark somebody's spirituality or faith based on their circumstances. We can't say, well, that person is rich. They must have a lot of faith in God. That person is poor. They must not have enough faith or with health or anything else. That's, that's wrong. That's not what the Bible has to say. In fact, some of the dearest believers that I know are in Honduras right now. In the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And as I've been, again, I've been there two different times. And it, it you never get used to seeing a, a pile of clay and tin and knowing that eight people live in there. And seeing the two toddlers that live there with no clothes on in the yard because there's not money for diapers and they need to pee and poop sometimes, and so they just do. 
we don't understand that level of poverty. And yet these are some of the dearest, most faith-filled believers I've met in my life who love God and understand that despite the poverty that they are in, they have a spiritual wealth that matches no other. And I've sat in a home with my, with my wife, kind of on the covered porch that they had out there, and they had one little tiny table and two chairs that they owned, and they wanted Amy and I to sit in them. And they had made a soup out of the chicken that they had and had killed that morning. And they wanted us to eat first. And if there was anything left over, then mom and dad would have some. And if there was anything left over, then the kids would get some. Because mom and dad have to work. And we were so important to them, us well-fed, fat Americans, that we were their spiritual guests and their emotional guests, and they wanted to care for us first. And to not be rude, we had to eat food while the kids stood around watching like we were a show. And that level of poverty, and yet they believed in God with a more fierce faith than I've ever had. They did. And they loved other people and were generous with me more than people that I see in America. And I think one of the problems is because we can get ourselves through the day. I mean, you can. You can make sure you get three squares. You can make sure there's something to occupy your time and you can stay out of the rain. There are ways for you to get through the day without ever needing God. So how many days do we waste as believers? We just don't get it that we always need God, that he's our sufficiency, that he's our satisfaction. He's the one in whom we can be full and satisfied. And yet we're like, I, don't, I didn't really need God that much today. I just kind of got through it. And we waste day after day. And we should be with our Savior. We should be with him. So we will not necessarily be physically satisfied every day of our life in this world because there's still sin and the effects of sin. But that's why, like my Honduran brothers and sisters probably do far more, we need to long for heaven because heaven is that time when it's perfect. And the difficulty of our marriage or our health or our kids or our job, that's all just going to melt away and it's going to be perfected. Amen? Let it be so. Lord, come quickly. But he is the bread of life in the meantime, and I'm not going to want anything. So last time among the Jews, we had 5,000 men that were counted, plus women and children. So we, we estimate 10 to 20 grand. This one's only 4,000. It's just a minor miracle. 4,000 people, anybody could do that. No, anybody could not do that. This was amazing. But they all have been fed now. Jesus sends them on their way. Men, women, and children, they go away, and immediately, which is our author's favorite word, uh, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat and head over to the district of Dalmanutha. Where is Dalmanutha? Good question. <laughs> We're not really sure. It's one of those cities that doesn't exist anymore. There's some ruins that have been found, and they're like, we think it's on the, the west side of the Galilee, um, which would be back in Jewish land, uh, but they're not 100% sure if that's it. So imagine again, the west side of the Sea of Galilee is Jewish territory. Jesus has gone north and done some ministry up there. 
and east and done some ministry there in Gentile land, just a small amount to make sure that we all know, even though we're not Jewish, he still loves us and has compassion for us. Now he gets in the boat and heads to what we believe is uh, Jewish territory, at least for a second. The Pharisees came and came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. <clears throat> again, another reason why we think this is probably Jewish territory he goes into for a moment is the Pharisees show up. The Pharisees are the religious elite, the religious leaders, the authority figures in all of the religious kingdom of, of the Jews at this point. But it, they're more like the religious Gestapo at this point uh, coming at Jesus. This is, again, sad but familiar territory. They often come at Jesus because they have decided in their hearts and in their minds that Jesus is a fraud. No matter the miracles they've seen, no matter the teaching with authority, that he has, uh, that they've heard, their minds are made up. They have, in fact, said, "I will not let the facts get in the way of what I choose to believe." Sounds like American politics to me. I will, <laughs> on both sides. I'm not being political here. On both sides, I will not let the facts get in the way of what I choose to believe. It's what we do. We 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 can't get past our preconceived notions of everything. And so the Pharisees raise the stakes, and they demand a sign from heaven. But we know right here, John Mark knows, we know it was to test him. To test him. In their eyes, again, Jesus is a fraud, and they want to discredit him in front of the people. One author put it this way. It's one thing to test, or to put the Lord to a test in faith. It's quite another to test him in unbelief. And for the second time in two chapters, Jesus sighs deeply. He was a devotional being. He still is. Even though he's God, he has emotion. He expresses this deep emotional anguish with this sigh. Last time it was for a deaf man who had a massive speech impediment and couldn't communicate, who was an outcast in his society. He had this deep empathy for this man, and he sighed deeply in his soul this time it's hard hearts and stubborn people who've got their minds made up the pharisees so it's this deep frustration he sighs why he says why does this generation need or demand or seek a sign <coughs> i mean you've seen what i've done you've you've heard what i said you have the torah and the prophets the point to who i am so many prophecies about me, there's no way they could all be fulfilled in one man, and yet they are. You have every sign you need, yet you refuse to believe. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Although, in a sense, there will be a great sign at the resurrection, will there not? He says, if you can't see God work at work at me, if you can't see that, then no additional evidence will convince you otherwise. It's just not going to break through to the hardness of heart. Your demand is simply uh, an expression of unbelief. And so I'm not going to play your evil and wicked game. 
And he left them and got in the boat again and went to the other side. One, uh, one man summarized this whole, this is only three verses. It's a tiny little story. But he said it this way. When unbelievers test the Lord, it grieves the Lord, and they lose the Lord. Which is kind of, which is kind of what happens here. Because um, this is like a, a prophetic shaking of the dust off their feet. You remember what he had the disciples do when they went from, from somewhere? Him leaving is a sign of divine judgment. They were physically close to the Son of God, these Pharisees, and yet they were so far from the heart of God, it wasn't even funny. I mean, they were in proximity, yeah, but they didn't have a clue. And so those with religious power and position just don't get it. And they lose the presence of the Son of God, which is what they truly needed. So then the last scene we're going to examine today is just Jesus with his disciples. They, they go to Jewish land and then leave because uh, of the unbelief that's there. But Jesus finds kind of this small teachable moment with his disciples in the boat on the way. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out because of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. This is supposed to be comical to us people. This is, this is humorous. Because, um, well, first of all, they just fed 4,000 people and had seven large baskets of leftovers. And somehow, there's only one loaf in the, bread, in the boat. Right? I think that's funny. Now, Mark could be taking this out of chronological order, but it seems like the events are, are right after each other to me. There's a lot of bread available, and nobody remembers. Jesus is still thinking about what just happened with these Pharisees, though, and, and the rejection that he's received at the hands of the religious leaders. He's like, all right, speaking of bread, we just had the miracle of bread. You're talking about a loaf of bread. Let me give you a little teachable moment here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, leaven? He's talking about leaven? He's probably mad at us for not bringing enough bread. I think Jesus is mad. Why didn't you bring bread, Peter? Me? It's your fault, John. Your dad was a baker. You should be in charge of the buns. No! Judas should have grabbed it. Pointing the finger, wondering. They're so worried Jesus is mad that they totally don't get it. Discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. The nice thing is the Pharisees are hopeless. They're so hopeless that they've rejected Jesus and, and have made up their mind and are denied the presence of Jesus. The disciples are just in process. They're more like you and me. We're stupid sometimes. We pick up lighters on the ground and burn ourselves repeatedly. We just keep knocking our head against the same sin. We keep frustrating ourselves about the same situations, making the same mistakes. But we're with Jesus in the boat. We, we've committed to be his disciple. We've committed to follow him. So at least we're still in process here. And I think that's the difference. Again, I, I, another comical thing of this. Didn't Jesus just provide bread for 4,000 people? Are you really scared that that one loaf's not going to be enough? Just let Jesus do the break and you're going to be fine. It's a comical situation, also kind of a sad situation, but it's a beautiful situation to show us that Jesus isn't done with this motley crew, just like he's not done with you and I when we don't just get it. He uses 
nine questions he's about to ask. He's just going to rattle off nine questions, but not like to beat them up. There's, there's great agreement with the scholars that I read. These questions aren't to beat up the disciples. They are an instructive tool. You know, you know this, this, this tool. Ask good questions, and you get the person to say the answer that they already know. It's this kind of teaching technique. Yeah, we use it as parents. We use it as school teachers. Um, when you know the child knows the answer to the question, they know a certain piece of information, they can't seem to give it to you, and you're frustrated with them that they don't know it, so you ask them some leading questions to get them there. And again, if they say it in their words out of their own mouth, they might own that concept better. Great teaching tool. So his goal is to redirect their attention to the answers they already know. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? It should be obvious to you guys that what I'm talking about isn't bread. I'm talking about the Pharisees, talking about Herod. Next question, do you not perceive or understand? Apparently not. <laughs> are your hearts hardened? Apparently so. Though they're trying again. Having eyes, Jesus says, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Remember the physical healings we've been seeing just recently of ears being opened up, of tongues being loosed, of eyes being open? The, the physical healings of Jesus mirror the spiritual healing that he wants to do in every one of us, even if we weren't born blind or, or deaf or, or mute. He still needs to fit spiritually heal every single one of us because we've all been born with sin in our lives and we need a Savior. They still don't see with God's eyes, though, and they don't hear. He says, finally, uh, in this round of questions anyway, and do you not remember? It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget when I have a week like I have that God's provided for me for the last 45 years. That I've, not, I, I've never have had to go hungry. He, he takes care of me, and it's okay. And I don't need to fret, and I don't need to worry, and I don't definitely don't need to complain and whine. It's easy to forget that, though. The very next struggle. <laughs> when I broke the five loaves, Jesus asked for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. We can answer this one. <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Again, and they said to him, seven. We know this one. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? which is actually where Mark ends this whole story. <laughs> kind of a strange place to end it. But Jesus, he gets the fact that we often don't get it. He gets the fact that we often don't yet understand. The problem is that um, Jesus is thinking heavenly and wanting us to think heavenly, and we're thinking, what's right in front of me right now? What can I see? I can see this problem. I can see this deficiency. I can see that, and I'm focusing all my attention with my eyes down to the ground. When Jesus is trying to get me to pick my eyes up towards him. He knows this about us. The question we all, I think, need to ask ourselves this morning is, in what ways are we like the disciples in this situation? In what ways are we just not getting it? We might know it, but we're not living it. In what ways do we hear God's word and we choose to take something away that wasn't even there or meant? 
in what ways do we come to church on a Sunday and listen to God's word preached? And, and yet, when we walk away, uh, are we really chewing on it? Are we really digging for God's plan in it? Or, or are we just remembering that funny opening illustration about the cigarette lighter and, and that time Pastor lost his place <laughs> and when the computer didn't work? You know, we, we remember all these weird little things, but are we chewing on God's word? Are we asking God to convict us and to change us? Jesus had been trying to give his disciples very strong warning when he said, listen, watch out. Those were his literal words. Watch out. Beware of what? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is this substance that you put into uh, your bread dough to make it rise. And it just takes a little bit. And it works itself in really quickly to the entire loaf. The leaven of unbelief had worked itself into Herod and the Pharisees. It gripped their hearts. It gripped their minds. Despite all the facts, all they could see was their unbelief. They, 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 they couldn't see Jesus for who he was. And Jesus says, watch out. Don't let this happen to you. Don't let it, because it could. And I thought to myself, how can it do this? Why does he need to tell the disciples this? These 12 guys really were the cream of the crop. They really were the upper echelon. They had been with Jesus for a couple years by now. They'd heard his teaching. They'd performed miracles on his behalf. They'd preached on his behalf. This group of men, there's no way the leaven of unbelief could work itself into one of them, right? Or maybe it does work itself into one of them in particular named Judas Iscariot. It's possible the leaven of unbelief had already begun working itself into the heart of Judas by this point. And instead of seeing the Son of God and worshiping him, he actually becomes an enemy of Jesus, turning him into the authorities, taking money to do so. It's not just unbelief as in like, oh, I kind of fell away. It's like becoming an adversary and now working against him, just like the Pharisees and just like Herod. Jesus' warning was very apropos, and we should take it as well. When we're tempted to believe that God doesn't care about our circumstances, when we're tempted to believe that he's not powerful enough to fill our needs, when we're tempted to believe that because our circumstances are difficult, it must mean God doesn't love me, when we're tempted to unbelief, watch out. Sometimes we just don't get it. I'm convinced the only way to avoid that is supernatural. (laughs) It's more than me. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now.